It is time for Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell. Welcome into the studio, Hayden. Kia ora, Anna. So, gosh, has there been any big news in the media this week? Well, you'll be surprised to learn there's actually been some happenings at the radio station RNZ. So, obviously, the big story of last week was the fact that an RNZ staffer had edited copy by the wire service Reuters to make it align more with Russia's view of things, particularly when it comes to the ongoing war in Ukraine. And since then... That staffer has been suspended. RNZ has launched an investigation. It's now in the process of combing through hundreds of other stories the staffer may have edited. And all this was covered at length by Colin on our Sunday show. But even since then, there have been more developments. And pray tell, what are those developments? Well, uh, let's get the the, the admin out of the way. The independent panel that will be reviewing RNZ's processes was announced today. It'll be chaired by the media law expert, Willie Akel. He'll be joined by the public law expert and former journalist, Linda Clark, and former director of editorial standards at the ABC, Alan Sunderland. But besides that, many of the people involved in this story have fronted to the media to be grilled this week. And one of those was RNZ chief executive and editor Editor-in-Chief Paul Thompson, but not before he was criticised early on Monday by the AUT journalism professor James Hollings for not showing up to be grilled. So he, uh, Hollings, actually had this to say about Thompson uh, turning down an invitation to appear on Morning Report. There is definitely a, a little bit of a culture problem in there somewhere that needs to be looked at from externally. And I'm, I was really surprised that Colin Peacock was left to front this issue um, a journalist, when really it should be one of the management up there taking responsibility and fronting up. And that says something itself about the culture. Now that's James Hollings on RNZ's Culture and Colin Peacock, my colleague, had been interviewed earlier in the show. But I would do a little bit of a correction. I'd note that uh, Colin Peacock wasn't fronting for RNZ there, but as a media commentator, he certainly wasn't standing in for Paul Thompson. But in any case... Paul Thompson fronted just hours later and has since undergone quite a bit of ritual media flagellation, most of it at the hands of his own staff. So in one early interview, he described the copy edits on the Ukraine war made by his staffer as pro-Kremlin garbage. And this is what Lisa Owen of Checkpoint had to ask in response to that description. Is pro-Kremlin garbage not to get enough to get you fired instantly? Uh, look, there are, there, what's happened is a, is a serious breach of our editorial standards and, you know, personally I'm just so gutted by it. We've let our audience down um, and the Ukrainian um, community down. Um, but I do need to make sure that we have a robust process because we've got enough challenges on our plate at the moment. I don't want to compound that by getting ahead of a fair process. Now... Before grilling her boss on whether uh, that staffer should be fired, actually, Owen, uh, Owen actually talked to the staffer involved, the one at the centre of the saga, and he told her that he'd been subbing stories this way since he started at RNZ. So I understand that the phone call was recorded, but it didn't go to ear. Uh, and here's Owen talking about its contents. Checkpoint contacted the journalist at the centre of the investigation. He told me, and I quote, I subbed several stories that way over the past number of years. In fact, since I started Radio New Zealand. And I have done that for five years and nobody has tapped me on the shoulder and told me that I was doing anything wrong. 
Now, Hayden, the question that arises out of that is how this staff member was able to edit stories in this manner for years without being challenged on it. Yeah, that is the big question, and it's one that has been put to Paul Thompson repeatedly. So here's one of those times. This is Catherine Ryan asking it yesterday on 9 to Noon. References to Russia launching its invasion of Ukraine, claiming that a US-backed coup in 2014 with the help of neo-Nazis had created a threat to its borders and had ignited a civil war that saw Russian-speaking minorities persecuted. Even phrased the way that is, that is outright propaganda, that is demonstrably factually incorrect. And how could it be published on the public media organisation's website without anyone seeing it? Uh, yeah, look, you've, you've, you've uh, summarised it um, um, really well. Um, it is so disappointing. Uh, I'm gutted. It's painful. There's that gutted line again, uh, but as gutted as he was, Paul Thompson was perhaps understating the extent of the issue even there. So here he is telling Lisa Owen the issue is limited to one area. I would point out that it is confined to one area of the many things we do. This is confined to one area. They're still serious. I'm not diminishing it at all. But, How you know, do you know that, Paul? Have you audited other stories? Have you done a cross-section from other journalists? How do you know that? Because of the work that we're doing in the through the audit, but also because of the specific circumstances around this type of content. Now, that's correct. If Thompson is trying to say that the issue does appear to be confined to the online news team or seemingly mostly to wire copy as things stand now, but some people have drawn the inference or the insinuation from that that the problem was only limited to stories about Ukraine and Russia, and that's not correct. So it's since been found that the staff have edited stories on Palestine, North Korea, Syria, Cuba and Taiwan. Some of those edits were sympathetic to authoritarian regimes. Now, Thompson didn't really offer an explanation for how that happened. And the closest he came to actually explaining it uh, and what went wrong was just saying that RNZ's editing processes are obviously not robust enough, not strong enough, and will likely be strengthened. And what exactly are those editing processes? And is anyone checking this sort of wire copy? Yeah, that's a good question. And and before I answer it, can I do a, a an edit of myself? Uh, got egg on my face. I uh, a correction of my correction earlier. James Hollings is actually from Massey University, not AUT. Sorry, I went to AUT. You know, I don't believe there's any other journalism programs in the country, but apparently there are. Sorry about that. Anyway, that's a good question. Editing processes at RNZ. The context of all this is that being an online news editor is an often high-pressure and high-trust role. You can do, uh, there's a lot of, because you're working at speed a lot of the time in online news, you can actually get stuff up without too much in the way of checking some of the time because you just have to whack it up online and there's such a lot of stuff to put up online. So from what I understand, the staff member in question was one of only two people rostered onto editing the website during the late night, sh- night, late, late night shift when he actually subbed that copy that finally got him in trouble. And the other person rostered on was only uploading content for the morning. So they weren't actually actively monitoring the stories being uploaded. 
uh, on that night. So basically, you've got newsrooms and websites that are staffed in a pretty threadbare way. And that's just an old story. That's the story of a lot of problems with the media right now. This story is no different. Staff are stretched pretty thin. They're working fast. It's hard to put every story through multiple layers of editorial checks in those conditions. So that's something that's noted by the media commentator Gavin Ellis on his blog Nightly Views. He says, you know, that second pair of eyes that traditionally acted as a final check before publication no longer exists or is so overworked, uh, these are his words, in a resource-starved environment that they are looking elsewhere. Mm. And the other part of this is that the copy in question was from a wire service, which is meant to come pre-subbed. Exactly, and that's probably why, in some cases, the guard was down. The, the wire copy, it usually has less eyes on it in general because it's already gone through a pretty robust process at Reuters or AP or wherever you're sourcing it from. And most of the time, it'll just require an editor formatting it to in-house style, maybe removing some Americanisms, cutting it to length, and plonking it on the website. And if online news editors on their own can't be trusted with that process, uh, or won't be trusted with that process anymore, that's going to be a lot more work, and it's going to require a lot more staffing uh, for already under-resourced newsrooms. And just... As a side note, what can you edit with wire copy? That's one of the things that people are discussing here. So even if you agree with this person's edits, the heart of this issue is really that you can't take another person's subbed and often bylined copy from a wire service and make substantive changes to its meaning. And that that was really the problem here, and where it potentially breached RNZ's agreement with Reuters, which says you can't distort the text's meaning in a way that might be derogatory or defamatory. That's certainly the case here if you're making pro-Russian or what uh, Paul Thompson des- <laughs> described as pro-Kremlin garbage, putting that into the story. But also, I've seen commentary, and sorry for going on a bit of a rant here, but uh, that doesn't mean that Reuters' text is some somehow dictated to us from God on top of a mountain or something. You can add context, you can delete sections for length, you can insert relevant local info or quotes. And there's a danger, I think, with this issue that substantive changes to an author's meaning and intent, that's a real issue, that's being conflated with just people making any changes or edits at all. That's not really the problem. If you can't make any changes or edits at all, that's going to be untenable. Mm, I'm assuming as well um, that the section of RNZ's audience that comes to the site to read wire copy from Reuters is also relatively small. Yeah, and this is maybe another reason why it might have gone undetected for quite a long time, because I mean, without putting too fine a point on it, there's not a huge amount of attention on RNZ as a source of international news. And I mean, a major news organisation like RNZ has to have a world section, show it's credible, show it's up to date with stuff, but it's not a huge source of traffic. Maybe there's not as many eyes on it. Most people will be going to places like The Guardian or The New York Times for their international content and commentary. And yeah, I do wonder whether that might have been part of the reason this went unnoticed for so long. Mm. And now we also know that members of the Ukrainian community made a complaint over a story written by the staff member last year. Now, surely that was a chance to identify the issue. Yeah, that's got to be the focus of this investigation RNZ is doing. And Newsroom's Mark Jennings actually has written an interesting column on this, saying RNZ was alerted to issues of balance with the story that the staffer wrote, not just by the Ukrainian community members, but by what uh, Jennings calls an experienced journalist. And he says RNZ added balancing remarks from Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta and others after getting that complaint. Uh, but Jennings makes the point the original version of the story should have seen the staffer red flagged 
and his work given additional oversight, clearly that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So who's at fault for that? Now, that's hard to say. I don't know exactly the process that that went through, who saw the emails, who saw the complaints. Thompson told Lisa Owen that because the complaint was made to the broadcasting minister, Willie Jackson, primarily, with RNZ only CC'd into the email, it wasn't treated as something for the organisation to address directly. As far as oversight entirely, the, the top-level oversight, I mean, Thompson is the editor-in-chief of RNZ. The website itself sits under the head of content, Megan Whelan. On RNZ's checkpoint, uh, Thompson made it clear that neither he nor any other staff have offered their resignations, though. You're not just the CEO, you're the editor-in-chief. Have you offered your resignation to the board? No, I haven't. Has anyone else in management offered up their resignation? No. Do you think some of them should? No, I don't. So RNZ isn't the only organisation that's recently experienced a failure of its editorial processes, though, is it? The Herald on Sunday seems to have also made a major slip-up. Yeah, and on Sunday it, it published a pretty strange correction on the New Zealand Herald website. It simply said, A story published last Sunday about a woman who triumphed over a difficult background to become a lawyer had elements that were false, and publishing the article we fell short of the high standards and procedures we hold ourselves to. Now... Some questions do arise out of that, such as, what elements are you talking about? And on that, NZME doesn't elaborate. Or does it seem like uh, they've been taken in by someone here? Yeah, I mean, that seems, that's the obvious question that you'd have to ask here. It's what you might take from that. I mean, I've looked up the story in question. It was published on the front page of the Herald on Sunday's review section. It does tell a relatively dramatic story about a woman who became a high-flying lawyer after being raised by parents who she said were drug addicts entangled with the mongrel mob. Now, it's not obvious what the falsehoods in the story are. Obviously, NZME hasn't elaborated on that, but Gavin Ellis again pointed out some things about it that made alarm bells ring in his mind at least, namely that it seemed to be based on a single interview and the story subject did have a reason for talking to the paper. She has a book coming out. Right. Is this another situation where it seems like those extra pairs of eyes didn't get passed over the story before it went to print? I mean, it seems that way, right? It's hard to say given the lack of clarity, but you could speculate that perhaps due to time or staffing constraints, just editorial failures, the checks done on some of the claims in this story weren't rigorous enough. And those checks can be time-consuming. They can be resource-intensive in places that don't have a lot of resources. But as RNZ has recently found out as well, they're absolutely necessary, not only to deal with the potential bias or lack of experience or lack of attention to detail from your own staff, but to combat potential frauds who have now got powerful new tools in the the form of AI. I think there was a story recently about uh, the Irish Times that was taken in by a fake editorial writer. It was a person writing about how suntanning uh, oil could be seen as racist or something. It's a weird one to be a fraud, but uh, they they took in the Irish Times using an AI-generated headshot to look like a real person. And so there's this kind of stuff that's going on lately. And so, uh, I mean getting stuff right and accurate and not being taken in by people, it's harder than ever, and these kind of checks are going to be more necessary. Mm. 
Now, sticking with Radio New Zealand, funny enough, mm. uh, uh, end of this this very show, Karen Hay leaves nights on the... You know. Yeah, I don't know. Have you announced this yet on the show? Uh, uh, yes. You yes, have, it, okay. It, but it, yes, Karen Hay has announced she won't return to this show. RNZ has issued a brief statement on her departure saying she's resigned from nights to take a sabbatical, concentrate on writing, and it said that RNZ wishes her the best for the future. It's been a bit of a strange saga. She's been on leave since March. RNZ hasn't explained the reason for her absence including to several of the presenters who filled in for her. May I don't know. Mm. I, I, that's that's my understanding anyway. I mean it's it's a it's a it's a strange one when the Herald reported on her absence actually a month or two ago RNZ just said that its policy is that it does not share or discuss information relating to its staff and it's stuck with that. Uh there is other news at RNZ. One of the other hosts that's been on a pr- prolonged leave of absence, Jim Mora. He's making his way back to the airwaves after experiencing problems related to his voice. And I do understand that he's he's actually going to be co-presenting or helping out on this Sunday show with the presenter called Anna Thomas. Oh, who's, oh yes. Yeah, do you, Gosh. Know, do you know her? <laughs> I know something about that. Okay. <laughs> yes, we will be uh, presenting the show together on Sunday, which um, we're looking forward to. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, RNZ special media watch tonight. Um, but shall we shall we stay with the station for just a little bit longer? Um, it's got a new series focused on the talking points uh, uh, politicians recycle. Yes, and this this is by Farah Hancock and uh, Guyan Espiner of RNZ's in depth team. And they've analysed just about every regularly scheduled interview by a major party political leader since July. And their mission, figuring out uh, what phrases our politicians repeat in every interview. And some of those phrases are just what you'd expect. Seven new taxes, current tax, more taxes, extra tax, 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 tax. Now water infrastructure, big infrastructure, 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 infrastructure. That's Christopher Luxon and Chris Hipkins. Now, uh, this is Luxon coming up. Uh, some of these uh, repeated phrases are less conventional. Doing a rinky-dink. Rinky-dink cost. Not rinky-dink, band-aid cost. Rinky-dink. Rinky-dink. Rather than a rinky-dink, band-aid cost a living payment going to dead people. What is a rinky-dink? Rinky-dink. I just... <laughs> Sometimes you just you just love the phrase rinky dink. You repeat it. I don't think this was given to him by his minister. That, that, no, that's a no. personal flourish. I think. Do you think so? I don't think it. I don't. You can't I, condemn Ox- a man that wants to say rinky dink all the time. Look, I'm going to search up Oxford Dictionary to see see what it actually means. Rinky dink. Well, we should get that get that in our ears. Old uh, fashioned, amateurish, or shoddy. Yeah, that's what there I was thought. The amateurish one. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay, <laughs> rinky dink. There you go. Well, that's an interesting, you know, it's almost a yeah comedic topic for investigation. But there's there's some serious reasoning underpinning it, right? Yeah, it's not all rinky dinks. I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> I mean, it isn't explicitly detailed in the first story, but I mean, I'd say the point is that the public deserves to know what politicians are selling him, and the trend is towards politicians essentially ignoring journalists' questions, repeating their talking points that have been given to them by their advisors. It's becoming more pronounced. You see it particularly in places like Britain. There are viral clips, I think, of uh, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak essentially just ignoring interviewers entirely and repeating his party's five priorities for the country ad nauseum. Uh, you know, we, we see it here as well. And the idea is that, I mean, if we can actually show politicians are sticking to a script, we might be able to immunise 
ourselves to some of that script's usefulness and perhaps we might even divert a few of our politicians into into delivering more genuine, interesting answers. Or that's the theory at least because I'm not sure it'll work in reality. Because this week we got a lesson in why politicians often retreat to the safety of their pre-prepared lines. Case in point, this is Christopher Luxon talking to a farmer in Helensville. We, um, we have become a very negative, yet whining, inward-looking country, and we have lost the plot, and uh, we've got to get our mojo back and have a lot more ambition and aspiration. Mm, that's probably not the soundbite his advisors had put on their wish list for the week. Yeah, I mean, I'm no comms advisor and I don't want to presume, but I think probably not. That was mm. caught on a hot mic. Uh, the clip has since made international headlines and papers like The Guardian, and it does kind of, kind of go to show that there are dangers for a politician in going off script, speaking off the cuff. You can spark a mini scandal, then end up spending the week explaining yourself rather than battling your political opponents. If that happens enough, you might see a narrative forming. You might get called gaff prone. Uh, you know, comments you perhaps intended to be joking or innocuous might become their own stories. Uh, this was certainly the case for Luxon again this week as well, with another set of comments he made at uh, I think it was a conference called Building Nations 2023. Oh, you mean? when he suggested that the people in the audience should have more babies. Mm. That's that's certainly the one. And, I mean, looking at that audience's demographics, I'm not sure that that was too feasible <laughs> anyway. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I mean, this is the thing. I get the concern over uh, that comment. I mean, Luxon has uh, some pretty questionable past statements when it comes to uh, women's issues. He said he considers... Abortion to be murder. National has a low number of women in its caucus, hasn't selected that many as candidates in the coming election. Yesterday, one of his top-ranking MPs, Michael Woodhouse, apologised for calling Education Minister Jan Tanetti a good girl. That's his words in the Privileges Committee. So, yeah, National in general, and Luxon in particular, probably didn't do themselves any favours here. But from the accounts of the people who were actually at this Building Nations event, that wasn't the babies thing, wasn't intended as a serious suggestion. And that's certainly how the hired MC at the event, Jack Tame, read it. He actually wrote an article for One News saying, the comments were lighthearted and made in the context of a conversation about labour shortages and the pressures of an ageing population. And he added he couldn't imagine any of the hundreds of people in the room construed Luxon's joke as meaning anything more. Yeah, again, it shows the dangers politicians face when they go off script. Yeah, and the way that they can get punished for it in the media, you can you can understand why the media does go hard at it because, I mean, what politicians say is important. Their sentiments are important. They have the power to shape the country. They're worth scrutinising. With great power comes great responsibility and all that jazz. But you do have to wonder whether this is a bit of a double-edged sword for us in the media, right? We, we like to castigate politicians for just peddling their pre-prepared talking points, but you can understand perhaps why they want to retreat into that safety when we dole out such harsh consequences whenever they do go off script or screw up or say something unclear or make an ill-considered gag and we call every slight adjustment in their thinking or change in their mind a, a flip-flop and, you know, fair enough. We we do loathe our politicians' apparent inability to speak like human beings, to speak frankly and speak off the off the cuff. But I do wonder uh, whether the way that they're punished, whether a tiny bit more grace from our media might actually compel them to open up a bit more, whether this is a bit of a give and take mm. situation. 
Well, just as an epilogue, you wanted to talk about a documentary that aired on the TVNZ show Sunday this week that had a media angle to it. Uh, yes, I do. Can I do one more gripe about RNZ before we... <laughs> Sure. Before we move well, on. Well, why not? Go on. I, Go look, on. I, I've got a pet theory, and I'd love people to text in about this, but I do not believe that anyone has ever uh, paid attention to the entirety of a long weather forecast and a possibly even a short weather forecast. Well, I think that it's impossible. I think that the brain is not capable of listening the, all the way through one of those things. And I'd love if you have listened all the way through paying attention to them all to let me know and tell me that I'm wrong. Okay, text 2101. Well, I can tell you as a, a, an often reader of long forecasts that if you dare miss out a section, then the listeners will let you know. Yes, and you've but given, they might be just No, no, the, they the, say uh, you've given Auckland, you've given Tauranga, you've given you know uh, Hamilton, you've given uh, Gisborne, but you haven't given Taranaki. So they, they hear them all. Perhaps I'm just projecting my brain maybe onto everyone you, maybe else. Maybe you are. I find it's it very soporific. I just, I can't. <laughs> I, I go into another place and I, and I come back and they're reading out in Invercargill. I, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> It's like well, a tranquilizer. You, well, you just need, maybe, maybe, you know, you are that generation. Your attention span is just. It's true. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah, too much watching, you know, I don't know, Instagram and social media feeds or something like yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Tell us about the Sunday show. Well, this is a lot more serious and a lot more of a serious topic. But I mean, if you don't know about it, uh, there's been a saga over in Australia and uh, it has a kind of media angle to it. And. The documentary that aired on Sunday was about the VC winner turned uh, now disgraced war criminal Ben Robert Smith. And if you don't know his story, he was this war, war hero, VC winner. He was named Australian Father of the Year. And then there were these investigations spearheaded by journalist Chris Masters and Nick McKenzie that alleged he had committed a series of horrific war crimes in Afghanistan, including the murder of unarmed civilians. And Robert Smith uh, had recently been employed as a TV executive at the giant media Australia media company Seven Network and he took a defamation case against Fairfax Media, Masters and Nick McKenzie over their reporting. He just lost that case last week. It was a kind of a huge media story over in Australia and all this uh, is covered in the Sunday version of the documentary by Australia's 60 Minutes. They were just re-screening it here but uh, I just want to note that a bunch of interesting stuff was cut out. What? what which was what? Um... Uh, now, I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not criticising Sunday here. They've got to make some cuts for time. They've only got an hour. They've got to stick a couple of stories in. But as as hard as it is for me to accept as well, you know, not everyone is obsessed with media drama, but there is some media drama here. And some of the excise material was uh, about that and includes includes reporting on how and why Ben Robert Smith was bankrolled by his billionaire employer Kerry Stokes to the tune of millions of dollars. He wouldn't have been able to take this defamation case without the help of this billionaire media mogul. Right, so besides the fight between Robert Smith and these journalists, this is also kind of a shadow war between massive media organisations. Yeah, exactly, or at least that's how Kerry Stokes seems to have wanted, well, how he saw it. Uh, he saw it as a rival media company trying to take out one of his inve- one of his executives and a person that he admired, obviously. And in fact, the journalists at the centre of this reporting say, even though Stokes might have seen this as a media smear campaign against one of his executives. They simply don't care about Robert Smith or where he worked, that he was an employee at Seven. So this is Nick McKenzie talking to 60 Minutes reporter Tom Steinfort on that. Only Kerry Stokes can answer the question as to why Kerry Stokes has spent a fortune pouring absolute shit over part of the media 
and backing a man who is now found to be a war criminal. I suspect that Kerry Stokes and some of his people would say that this is a proxy war of sorts, that, you know, you're a Channel 9 employee trying to take down a seven-figure. Number one, I did the story when I was working at the Asian Sydney Morning Herald. I wouldn't give two hoots about Channel 9 or Channel 7. I do not care where Ben Robert Smith works. He could work for NASA or anywhere. It's irrelevant. We've cared about one thing only, which is the truth. And finally, the truth is one. So the truth is one. Mackenzie has now been vindicated by the courts. The truth of his reporting has been established in legal proceedings. Seven has announced that Ben Robert Smith has resigned as an executive and there's talk that he may have to face legal proceedings, potentially even for murder. So it's a pretty extraordinary saga uh, and it's worth going into that stuff as well. And it's extraordinary as well that he was able to hinder the publication of the truth thanks to the assistance of a media organisation whose stated mission is to get the truth out. Great. Hey, um, Hayden, before we just get on to your last little comment, um, I have to say we have been inundated with texts. Shall we just go through the texts? From people. Well, I can say the majority say we love and listen to all the long forecasts. I live in Dunedin. I listen to the weather report uh, wanting to hear about Otago. I, I'm all, uh, we're hearing about the Chathams. Um, uh, please tell Hayden. You say he, that you're hearing oh, about the Chathams, but that's on, the last one, hang right? Hang on, actually, here we go. Here's one. That's, they're, they're coming in so quickly, I can't mm. keep up with them. Uh, tell Hayden he's not alone. I'm intently listening to the weather forecast and realised I've completely drifted off. Um, okay, just over too. the weather. Oh, okay, Hayden. OMG, preach Hayden. The extended weather forecast need to be let go. People can check the website. Oh, but no, look, this listener says, no, they. I love long forecasts, especially the Marina Mountains ones. So there you go. <laughs> oh, um, you know, you do want to hear how the Marina... But the point that I'm making, I don't hate them, is that I literally will sit there and try to concentrate. Yeah. I will think, this is the time brain. This is your moment to shine. You can sit through this and... Uh, yeah, as that the, the, that listener said, you know, twenty seconds later, I'll find I've I've drifted off. I'm in another place. Yeah, okay. Actually, as I'm reading them, and they are just coming in with all all our listeners tonight. They are hot on this weather. Um, although, if I wake during the night, I'm hopeful it's before four a.m. Marine forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Because that is a particularly long forecast. Not that I've done an overnight shift, but I know So this person's waking up at 4am hoping that they can hear the marine forecast. perfectly soporific for getting back to sleep. Oh, that is true. That's that's Jeremy. That's from Jeremy. Um, But Wendy says, I certainly listen to the weather forecast for the whole country. It helps me understand what is happening. Um, That is where the movements are, from what directions, including our local weather and how the next days might pan out for me where I am going or where I'm going to be. See, that's from Wendy. There you go. Okay. Um, well, I'd, I'd love to know what's happening, but I simply cannot uh, yeah. pay attention long enough Actually, to find out. Claire says uh, she is 62, and that was she listens to the chat of mine, and suddenly she says, thank heavens for the main centres that come at the end, um, <laughs> which is great. You always wake up when the chat of islands come on, though, yeah, for some reason, right. eh? Well, actually, you hear that's, the chat of islands, that, you're like, my, oh, there it is. That's my cue for the... Um, Actually, when she says, or he says, the the Chatham Islands, that means that, and I'm on a shift, I'm on on air, I'm on. That's it, the red light's on. Um, Speaking about the red light, uh, it is going off in a minute for the news. Hayden Donnell, thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you to the listeners for their texts backing me up. (laughs) Brilliant.